We are back. And this is a very special session we've got today. You know how we like to do it. Bring it real, real hot and heavy with this ML in production stuff. And we've got some hard hitters with us today for this event. It's a very special roundtable session, as we like to call it here. And what I wanted to do is try and recreate some of the magic that I have seen happen when I have visited the Tecton office in San Francisco and New York. And every time I've been there, there's been this like random conversations that will be happening at the water cooler, you could say. And since there are so many incredible engineers that work at that company, it inevitably teaches me a ton. And so I thought, well, why don't we try and get some of these awesome engineers onto a call together and set a very, very high expectation of having it be one of these kind of conversations. So enough of me blabbing. I might as well just bring on some of these engineers that I am speaking of and make sure that you all know who they are. First, I got to bring on my German brethren from the CTO desk of Tecton. We've got Kevin Stump. Where are you at, man? Where are you at? There he is, numero uno, to come onto the stage. How you doing, dude? Danke dir. Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Happy uh, here. It's uh, pretty disgraceful that I still don't speak enough German to be able to converse with you right now in it. Next up, we've got Isaac. Where are you at, Isaac? You are coming in as the consulting architect from Tecton. And how you doing today, dude? Oh, and we can't hear you first. First one of the day. I get the feeling there's going to be a few tech- out the way. There was somebody had to do it. Somebody had to be that person. So next up, I'm going to have Eddie join the screen. Eddie, dude, what's going on? Solutions architect at Tecton. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And last but not least, we've got Derek coming on. Derek, for everyone out there, is a product manager at Tecton and has helped me immensely thinking through products and how to properly look at ROI. And I want to get into that so much. But first... We all came here because getting ML models into production, it's been, it's a tale as as difficult as the end of time, right? It's been difficult to get these models into production for a while. And does it have to be, I guess, is the first question. I think it still is, even though there are all these LLMs out there, but for the ML stuff, like... We want to talk about these challenges that is is happening with what I've heard some people call classical ML, traditional ML, ML 1.0, whatever you want to call it, whatever your flavor is. I would love to hear from whoever wants to jump in first, what are some of these challenges when it comes to getting your traditional classical ML into production? Yeah, so in my role as a solutions architect, I talk to a lot of different folks 
um, we're in a pre-sale side, so there's a wide variety of different customers that we get to talk to. Um, my opinion, by far, the biggest challenge is the way different organizations are set up to actually try to deploy models. And, and what I mean is typically you have data scientists on you know one end of the floor, developing models, training, building features on their laptop uh, with God knows what language and doing what they're doing. And then they unfortunately throw the recipe for the features over the fence to some poor MLL, MLE team that's probably understaffed that now has to productionalize that recipe um, and make these features go live. And this is difficult, like in a batch setting, like these batch uh, features. But then we have like these real-time features, features that are coming off the stream that increases complexity. Um, and I, I you know, just to see these two different teams, and it happens at every organization, I think there's a lot of friction there to get these models into production. If you're even lucky enough, I think, to have the data available to train your models on and uh, ID. Yeah. <laughs> you, you already uh, jumped, I think, to the point where a data scientist may have access to the relevant data in the organization, have a model that's actually of good quality and whatnot. And now that you have something you're excited about, throw it over the wall to an ML engineer, data engineer, software engineer, or what, what have you. But I think you, even to get to that point, you uh, first need to make sure that you collect the right data and that you give access to the right data and that it's easy to, to find it in the organization. Obviously, depending on the size of the organization, that is, uh, and almost the, the regulatory requirements of uh, the industry, the companies in, et cetera, that can already be the first pretty gigantic hurdle to overcome. Um, I think, uh, I like the question or the framing of like, why is it still hard, right? We've been, people have been trying to build tools to make this easier. We've been doing this for a long time. Uh, I may reflect on like, you know, that I think the best we can aspire to is, you know, it's as hard as like a software project, like software is so hard, right? Like putting any, like, you know, real good engineering product out there in the world is, uh, is an endeavor. Now I obviously machine learning, like when I think as a product manager, I'm trying to make this type of thing easier. That'd probably be my goal. If we could be like, at least as easy as a, you know, a, a regular software engineering project. Uh, but just as like Eddie and Kevin are saying, you have these additional things that come in uh, where you still have diverse skill sets and also uh, all this access to data and uh, you know, extra complexities that come into play. So I don't think it's ever going to be easy, but obviously we try every day to make it more approachable. I wonder actually if it could be easier than deploying software because with like today, it's definitely harder than it is in most organizations to uh train and deploy ML models if you compare it to how easy it is for them to develop and deploy software applications. But if you think about it, I think the solution space, so to say, the, the flexibility of the different types of solutions that you may want to uh, implement in software is, is a larger space than the slight or constrained space of ML. And so maybe the we can set the bar even higher than that and say, hey, we, we should get to a point where it's not just as easy as deploying software or as hard, if you will, but actually significantly easier than I think, Kevin, you mentioned like you need to have the data in place. I think we're in a good spot now because a lot of companies have been spending five, 10 years getting their data in the right space. And now they're saying, how do I get business value out of that data? And, and the answer to that is going to be some of these um, traditional ML as well as operational ML. But as I work with customers who are in that kind of inflection point, um, we're working with that to get their case into product and where we see kind of we're building our project plans associated um, to get that use case and still that 
single largest like hole in the tent is around kind of setting up those data processing pipelines and, and actually developing that um, SQL or PySpark or other code. So when I see like what is the largest bottleneck, it's actually having inefficient feature development workflows that on um, that take go from your analysis and design phase to actually writing the features and, and putting that into the production. So how do we actually make that um, workflow and that life cycle um, much more efficient? Love that. Well, it, it's interesting what you're saying there, Isaiah, is how we've been building these data foundations for a while. And I would love to hear from you and or Eddie on have you seen just like messy sprawls? And if so, what was the worst one? And tell us who it was. No, don't call out anybody by name, obviously. But like, because uh, there's that rationale of, yeah, we should have our uh, our stuff together by now. But potentially there's also another rationale where it's like, yeah, it's been 10 years of us just like accruing tech debt or data tech debt. Yeah, I mean... I, I do think we've coalesced on like a base set of tools that we're going to use to develop our data pipelines. Like 10 years ago, you may have decided to build this application with something called Storm or, or something else, right? You know, I think we've landed on maybe Flink, Spark Streaming, Spark, Snowflake. Like we know the tools that we're going to be using, but I still like even once we get into production, there is so many things that can happen upstream. Um, that can be challenging from like a data perspective. Like just to give you an example, working with a customer this week, feature was being refreshed on a daily basis, was working fine. All of a sudden there's no features being developed or, or being created on a daily basis. What happens? Okay, the upstream ETL now decided to run two hours later than what they were used to. And okay, we have to catch this now. So I feel like we know the tools, data is in somewhat shape, but there's still so many there's so many points at which things can get messed up that it makes it challenging to really get these features and models into production. Oh, that's a great point. So speaking of that, I think there is an awesome question. I mentioned it. I kind of like hinted at it, foreshadowed it, if you will, uh, for you, Derek, and talking about how much infrastructure costs you need and how many places that things can go wrong, as Eddie was saying, how do you even evaluate if you're getting positive ROI from all of these different costs and from all of this time that you're putting into making sure that things are working like they should be? What does that even look like? Like, what's your framework around that? My favorite story around this in terms of evaluating like, the ROI of the ML was talking to some folks. It's a long time ago now, so I don't think it's any like sensitive ID. Um, but it was from like the Uber pricing team in 2015 or 2016, maybe. And they had come up with this like really sophisticated deep learning model that like really like optimized, uh, like the price or the conversion rate of people can like requesting rides. So they were, you know, obviously they're generating more business more people were requesting rides. So they had this awesome model, but it costs like 50 cents per additional ride generated. So they did all that math, right? They're like, well, we, we spend 50 cents of like additional compute on this deep learning model. And then we get an additional ride, um, which might make sense in North America where their profit margin might be a couple dollars a ride, but in, 
you know, someplace like India where their profit margin might be like 10 cents a ride, it didn't work. Uh, and so this team, which built an awesome model and ultimately ended up not rolling it out because, uh, there were some places where the additional value they got of that, out of that was not covering their infrastructure costs associated with it. Uh, so yeah, that's like a team that actually did really well, where you were able to finally calculate your return. So it's like something that is hard to do, uh, but usually it falls in the realm of like AB testing with rolling out a change to your application. And then also even harder, I think actually is getting a good grasp on like, <laughs> what's the cost of it. And even if you, you know, take out like a development cost, uh, there's a lot of different infrastructure that adds up into this. So as Eddie was saying, like all your TL processes, uh, and then you have potentially like your, your databases that are powering your real-time applications and then the other uh, services, maybe like your, your model serving, uh, infrastructure. And so there's, there's really no way around it other than you need good cost attribution. We ought to make sure you have all your tags in the right place so that you can go back and say, Hey, with this use case, uh, you know, running it for a week costs me this amount of money. Um, and then when you have that in place, you can go back and say, okay, was this a good return or not? Um, now this varies also a lot by your industry, uh, the type of problem where your ML is really expensive, uh, on the running side is more like a B2C problem where you have, uh, you know, you know, millions of users, maybe hundreds of millions, and especially like recommendation systems are really expensive to run. And the, the marginal value you get there is a little bit lower. Um, versus when we look in like the fintech space or the B2B space, you know, every like uh, caught trans fraudulent transaction you get saves you a lot of money. And so th those cases are a little bit more like obviously worth it. You don't have to be as, as careful, but if you're looking at things like surge recommendations and kind of like big consumer app is where it's, it's definitely impactful for the business. If you can finally attribute the cost of running these systems. Now, what tooling would you recommend, Derek, for somebody who doesn't have the most amazing cost attribution in place right now? Like where, where should they start? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll say I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of AWS cost manager, right? It actually, or whatever your cloud provider is because there's going to be a really disparate set of tools. So you want to make sure again, that like you have all that attribution. Um, obviously I have to show at Tecton, we really do try to give you granular insights into the individual features that are running and how much it costs to produce those. But that's just one piece of the puzzle. I'll say there's both like, it's going to be the model inference <clears throat> side. And so really you need to like kind of collate all this data, even have an extra little lightweight pipeline that brings together all this cost data so you can get that total report. Um, so I said, yeah, it's really about having that full view over your infrastructure as opposed to, uh, an individual one. But then it also comes down to how you architect your system so that you're actually are able to attribute costs to different systems. Um, like if you're, if you just have one big pipeline that runs all your features, you never know how much an individual one costs and same that like you're using a shared model server across different applications and it's hard to attribute it. Um, so it also comes down to how you architect your system. I think it's probably the highlight also, I mean, so cost attribution to the infrastructure is important, but also I, I like what you said, Derek, about what the value is um, from a use case perspective. Like that, that's maybe on the business side of the house, not so much infrastructure really, but I think, yes, I have to understand that. And oftentimes that's like the hardest part, right? Like for something like fraud detection, I think it's pretty obvious, but for many other use cases, we saw that uh, at Uber many years ago with the ML platform, like you wanted to out 
ideally just a very hard objective number of these are the additional dollars that this use case adds to the bottom line, but very often it's just not the case. Like if it's a safety prediction or maybe it's just end customer, end user delight, like how are you going to measure that in terms of dollars? And it's like the, the, you'll, you'd have to follow the user over many, many weeks, months, and then somehow try to isolate that one variable. It'll be basically impossible. And, um, but even if you don't have a hard objective number of how it affects the bottom line, I think oftentimes it's, it's still extremely important to just showcase to those different teams. Well, this is how much infrastructure you're actually spending. And then they'll see, okay, well, this is obviously way more expensive than the value that my model could ever create for the business, even if they don't have necessarily a hard number. And so I think measuring the, the data and surfacing it to the poker involved becomes crucial no matter what, because uh, as I think Drucker said, you can't batch what you don't measure. So good. All right. So ROI is a huge one. I think the, the employee that can understand how to bridge those two gaps between like the business side and the technical side is worth their weight in gold. And to be able to understand that it is brilliant. We got that. Let's keep it cruising though. And let's talk a little bit like, uh, Eddie, I'm going to throw this one over to you is looking at different size customers, right? You've been working with small, big ones, and you've undoubtedly seen hurdles when it comes to getting these models into production. Is it a difference where you're going from like, if you've got a team of, of one, like that one unsung hero, or maybe a group of 10? versus a whole platform team that's servicing the needs of 70 data scientists, that type of thing. Like how did those two sides of the spectrum different, different, differentiate themselves? I think there's challenges on both sides. I, I just at the top of the mind, I feel that the larger, perhaps more advanced teams just have a lot more requirements that you have to try to, um, uh, meet. And I think that makes it a bit challenging, right? There's security requirements, there's SLA requirements, there's uptime, there's, there's a whole host of things that uh, have to be taken into account versus a smaller scrappy team um, that you can be perhaps a little more nimble with. Um, might be easier to get things done there. Um, but, you know, there's this challenge on both sides of, uh, of the customer profile. I'll, I'll add to that, which is like, I think what Eddie is, is saying is that when you just have, you know, a handful of use cases that are running on your platform, it's a lot, it's a lot clearer what you're building for. Like, okay, we need to meet the specific requirements of this like fraud case. Um, and so that, that helps draw a box of what you need to work in versus when you usually, when there's a larger organization, it usually means more diversity of use cases. And so even though you have more resources to bear and it's like, you can invest in this ML platform, you also have to balance the like very different needs of the recommendation team versus the fraud team, which is the pricing team. Uh, and, uh, I think that's where, you know, you can, if you try to do all those in one system, sometimes you can, uh, shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. Thank you for articulating that so well, Derek. There we go. You just, uh, pass the ball over to him. Uh, <laughs> Derek will clean up on it. So the, the, the other thing, like, when it comes to that, depending on the sizes, what do you feel like are certain infrastructure pieces that you are, you must have in place before you can even think about putting 
some ml into production like i know and and we should probably go and specify what was it someone uh told me the way like the speed at which you need those decisions to be made right we should specify like are you doing batch or are you doing it super real time or or super batch and what kind of infrastructure needs do you have there? And maybe Kevin, I'll kick this one over to you. And I, everybody's nodding their head, so I'm sure everyone has some kind of thoughts on it. Yeah, let's maybe start with a super batch, uh, as you just coined it. Uh, use case. I think no matter what type of ML you apply, batch, real time, whatnot, like you always have uh, the need to generate training data, and then later on you need to have the need to actually generate prediction data. And uh, what you need to do is, if you want to be able to generate training data, you need to be able to look at what the world looked like at any given point of time in the past, because that's what you train on. And if you don't do that, then you introduce the risk of data leakage, label leakage, where your model just trains on some data that uh, it sees from the future. And so no matter what, I'd argue that one of the most important things to start with is ensuring that we actually have a clean record of data somewhere in your data warehouse, somewhere in your data lake that preserves what the world looked like at any given point of time in the past as far back as you may want to train your models on. And in the simplest case, that basically just means hey, take like snapshots from your operational database once a day and throw it into a different partition on your data lake or in your data warehouse. Or if you're more a little more advanced, you may want to actually deal with these immutable event logs of data so that you're not redundantly snapshotting all the data at night, but you're actually just appending to an immutable and only log of data um, whenever a change happens in your operational system. To make that a bit more creative, your credit card company, whenever a transaction comes in uh, or a transaction state changes, you would just actually append a new row to the data, to the table that you have in your data lake. Um, if you deal with these immutable event blocks versus just snapshotting all of the operational transactions that you maybe have in your database at any given point of time at midnight. So that's, that's step one, like having this centralized data warehouse, data lake, where you store all the historical data so that a data scientist can actually go there and, uh, and trade their models. And that comes to the second piece, which is what I mentioned earlier, actually making it easy for the data scientists in a secure way to access the data, make sure that it's audit log, make sure that they have actually the right permissions to access it for their given use case. And uh, the different industries have different regulatory requirements. But that's where I'd start. And then you should have most things in place from a data engineering perspective to train a model and then use it to make batch predictions. Um, obviously, outside of just the data domain, there's also the modeling domain. So you want to give your your team an environment where they can actually train their models. And that could be as simple as spinning up a open source Jupyter notebook, uh, or you could go and use one of the other awesome notebook providers like maybe X or DeepNode or any of these good solutions. Um, so you have a standardized way for data scientists to actually train their models. Um, and before I continue and talk about maybe more advanced use cases and more advanced infrastructure, anything else that anybody here wants to chime in? No. Perfect yeah. cover. They're leaving it all to you, man. It's all <laughs> on you now. Thank you. No, no. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I think just from my perspective, when I've 
done these architecture reviews, if I see folks trying to drive features off of their OLTP, right, their online database, I <laughs> red flags come up. You do definitely need this kind of separation of this online system with the system, your data lake, your data warehouse, whatever, that you can actually compute and drive these features from. So like that's one basic separation or distinction that you need in place before you can get started. Like somebody who does not have that in place, what tool would you recommend they use? Uh, you know, I think there's countless five trans, you know, something that could basically take the snapshot off of the OTP and just land it into dbt or something into like s3 or your, your data lake or your data warehouse yeah i think five trans. i think that's a well it's a well solved problem at this point it just that folks haven't gotten there yet cool and then you've got the infra in place to do these batch use cases but batch is great for lots of use cases where you don't need to make real-time decisions that affect your end user in the moment um, like say, if you want to do lead scoring and make it easier for the sales team to figure out, Hey, what lead should they go after? Or you want to do churn predictions to figure out who do I want to send a, a reward email to, then these batch use cases are fantastic. But whenever you want to directly and in real time interact with the end customer, by say detecting fraud on the credit card immediately or recommending a certain item or giving them an insurance, the price quote or anything like that, then batch by itself is typically not good enough anymore. And so that's when we see most organizations actually put streaming infrastructure in place, um, like having your Kafka cluster set up or just use Kinesis on AWS or partner up with a provider like Confluent just to make it as trivial as possible to complement kind of your batch data infrastructure with a streaming layer that provides real-time data, real-time events to all the different downstream consumers. And one very important one of those would be typically the ML application um, or the, the feature platform, the feature store upstream, which is continuously processing data coming from the stream and making the the, the, the feature calculations immediately available for real-time predictions. Isaac, I see you, man. I see you want to say something. No? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'd just say like one of the challenges that we see often when people are going from batch batch to either batch and online inference or streaming and online inference is the change how you're actually processing data with batch and batch. Oftentimes you're, you can get away with kind of a trunk and reload type um, processing framework where on a regular basis, you're scanning all of the data and then writing um, that into kind of a feature store and running that data. As you start working with streaming or, or you start building kind of um, pipelines or saving online infrastructure, instead of processing and scanning the whole data, you would just want to scan data that has changed within the last time you ran a job. or um, And that in introduces the kind of a lot of data engineering problems that many data scientists aren't familiar with. So as we um, are working with a lot of customers to kind of move from what maybe what was traditionally batch batch to these kind of up the maturity to streaming and online, um, we see some of that, some roadblocks around kind of um, changing kind of that um, or moving up that learning curve to understand kind of how to process um, and, and handle change data capture, which goes into other problems like how to handle late arriving data, et cetera. What would you recommend is kind of like the simplest way to getting started if somebody doesn't quite have the streaming intro in place yet, but they've got their whole batch stack figured out, they have an operational application, they have an operational database. Like what should be the next step to without uh, premature optimization, putting some infrastructure in place in order to get access to fresher features and therefore more accurate predictions. 
I think it really depends on kind of the sophistication of your tool. Um, you can, uh, of your team and the kind of where you want to excel in. Um, I think one of the kind of first steps would be, hey, what is a, a streaming architecture? And that's where you kind of, I would lean towards like Kafka or, um, or kind of a service like Confluent. Um, or, I mean, there are kind of a lot of services that you can go out and kind of buy, again, Confluent, or even kind of moving to something um, like Tecton, who, where it's kind of is able to abstract some of the complexity away from um, those challenges. I want to throw in, uh, even before you actually like make the jump to streaming, one of the cool parts with these uh, ML models is you can actually kind of simulate what would your potential performance gains be before you go and do all that additional infrastructure. So assuming that you did what Kevin said earlier and that you have uh, good kind of state of the world data, you can run your model evaluation pipeline assuming that you have streaming. So let's just like assume every time a new record comes in, I'm instantly able to use that for inference. Um, I could run my area under the curve, like off loss uh, uh, type measurement and understand, hey, is this a, a 1% or a 20% improvement in my model accuracy compared to when I'm only updating my you know tables like once a day and my features once a day. And then hopefully like that, going back to our eye conversation, it doesn't tell you exactly what the impact on a user is going to be, but it should tell you of like, well, this is, this is really worth me moving into that streaming world, um, because it's like, has a really clear impact on my model performance. And for sometimes you actually might learn that it doesn't, uh, it depends on just like the velocity of your data and the nature of your problem. There's something else that I was thinking about as you all were talking about this and it's potentially you've seen this happen more than you anyone likes to admit where you set up your batch and then you set up your streaming and they don't really live that cohesively like they aren't able to talk to each other that well and so you end up having almost like a wall between the two how do you go about fixing it so it's more like a super highway than a wall and what does that look like in practice and maybe eddie i'll throw it over to you because i see you bobbing your head the most yeah so i i think when it comes to you know we've been talking about streaming features kind of these online use cases and then supposed to be batch use cases um and and this is how i interpret the question d i i think the biggest problem i see there is something called training serving skew where you have these real-time systems um, delivering features to your online system, right? It's, you know, thing that's powering the fraud model or actually doing the inference or the recommendation. Um, and that's all well and good, but then you have this other, almost a highway going in the opposite direction to keep the analogy going, which is how do you actually drive the training data to build the model? Um, and that training survey skew is kind of a universal problem. You almost have two different data pipelines. Hey, I'm Vishnu. I'm a data scientist at First Hand, and I definitely think that you should subscribe to the MLOps Coffee Sessions podcast. It's the best podcast out there to stay on top of what MLOps actually is, to talk to the true thought leaders in the space. And oh, by the way, Demetrios is absolutely hilarious. What a weird guy. You should definitely subscribe to the podcast. Uh, you have your batch written in SQL and you have your real-time written in 
Java or something like that? And then how do you make sure that the features are actually the same? That's a very challenging problem. I see that for any organization, big or small, regardless of the use case, I think that's like the number one problem that folks have um, trying to get into production. How do you solve it? Um, I, I think Tecton does a very elegant job of solving this, obviously. I think we, 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 you know, the fact that we can leverage Spark to actually compute the real-time streaming features as well as the batch features and then kind of have this Lambda architecture to write to both the online and the offline store. I think that's probably the easiest, best way to do it. Um, but I'm sure there's other ways to handle that problem. Curious, what do you, what do you guys think? Like, there's obviously batch features, there's stream features we've talked about, but then there's also real-time features that are actually executed at prediction time rather than pre-computing them necessarily um, from a street. Um, from what you guys have seen in your intuition, how do you uh, describe kind of the relative importance of those three different categories of, of features? Yeah, and I think it's important to define what the what a real-time feature is, uh, maybe for folks that might not be familiar with our nomenclature, but uh, basically any type of data that you only know at the time of inference, like you're doing a fraud transaction, you're trying to score that, you know the merchant, you know the amount of the transaction, you only know that at the time of inference. Um, those use cases, I think the real-time features are, are super important for that type of use case. Yeah, I, I would go so far as to say that for many use cases, your real-time data is actually like the most <laughs> uh, impactful. And so, you know, if you think about search, right, one of the most kind of canonical uh, ML use cases, you know, you're like, you're the literal like search terms that you put into the query are like the most important things for getting you good results. Uh, maybe the second most important thing might be like, you're located, like, are you in the US or are you in Canada, right? That's going like, to influence what results are useful for you. Um, and then the rest of it, right. When we start getting into like, maybe what is my, like type of queries I've done in the past. And that's where you get into back and streaming. And like those we know can have like a really big impact on the performance of your search and recommendation results. But I think are actually secondary to the value that you get out of that immediate context. Um, and that depends on the exact use case, but I think that shouldn't kind of underestimate that that real-time payload yeah i think in relative importance is so use case and model specific it's kind of hard to make streaming versus batch versus real time i would say real time are definitely probably the most common that you see on within almost every single model is there's, there's going to at least some type of online model you're seeing some level of real time um, i think what they pose some unique challenges especially from a data governance perspective a lot of times, unless you have like a feature store, feature platform, you're pushing this logic into kind of the model code itself, um, or you're coupling this into your model co code, or have this um, maybe decoupled as a set, no, another step in your workflow. Um, but then you're maintaining the kind of a lot of this code in a haphazard way within the, the, the model base. So it's easy to make mistakes within that Python logic, and it's hard to reuse that logic again and again. Um, so I think it poses some unique challenges that you don't necessarily see from batch or streaming, which are usually kind of decoupled outside of the, the model code itself. How are the perils of it? And now one thing that I was thinking about is when you're looking at this like zero to one, we could say, or yeah, basically getting up, getting going versus you're going and now you want to scale and now you want to go to the moon per se. How do those differ 
in what you all have seen as far as, oh, well, just getting up and getting going, you need to be thinking about these things. And this is the first stuff, like get everything out of the Jupyter Notebooks and get working. And then when you're up and running and you need to scale, how do you go from one to N models and feel confident about that, right? I think the easy answer is to have a repeatable process to get these data pipelines into production. Like if it takes you a month to do a data pipeline, okay, um, that's for one feature set. You can't really scale if it takes you that long to get one feature pipeline in place. So and have what a repeatable is, process. Yeah, sorry to ju jump in there um, because I probably should preface this too is like, what is that like? Eddie, you spend all day looking at people's stacks, right? What are some red flags when you're looking at stacks, like specific things where you're just like, ooh, that's going to be hard to do that. Potentially it's different technology that they've got together or like Kevin was saying, there's some data access that you have to worry about or there's just like the data cleaning in that pipeline. What does that re reproducible pipeline that takes a month look like versus one that takes a day or even like is happening 20 times a second. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, when I'm building out these architecture diagrams, I think the more boxes and arrows, the, um, <laughs> the infrastructure diagram has, uh, the more red flags I get. <laughs> you don't get extra points yeah. for more boxes. No, I think, and I think it's exponential. Every, every arrow that you see the, the diagram just exponentially makes things more complex, right? If I see two different data warehouses, if I see two different streaming queues, uh, if I see, you know, different applications consuming uh, or, or two different ways to generate training data, that, that just becomes difficult. And that's where the repeatability comes into the picture, right? How can I do this sanely? Uh, because as soon as you have success with one model, guess what? Your business partners, your data scientists are going to want to ratchet it up um, and build more. Um, so you need to have out of the gate a same infrastructure and a same way to get these um, pipelines up and running. Yeah. And when I look at those repeatable processes, I mean, there's multiple steps in those. You kind of have your analysis phase, you have your gathering requirements, you author the features, test them, put them into production. I'd say like the most common pitfall I see in, in that end end process is not investing enough time in that design and requirement gathering phases, um, being able to look at not just your holistically, not just at your first use case, but maybe at your next set of use cases, kind of building out a logical model, really focusing on what is the granularity of your data? What are the key entities that you're going to be working with? And what do I want to have in each table within my online store? And then being able to kind of build that out over time is going to uh, make sure that you're not kind of overfitting your features or overfitting your overall model to that first use case, which is allow you to scale um, as you move forward. Um, and then the other key piece um, would be to focus on kind of, again, that requirement gathering, understanding what is the list of features that I need for my model? What align on what are the, the needed requirements of that? What is the feature definition associated with them? And then actually go out and build that. Um, this is going to help in a couple of ways. One is it's going to allow you to have those frank conversations around, hey, this feature, um, it may say, I may require two, three weeks to develop it, but it's 150 in feature importance. As we look at 
ROI, it may not be worth including this uh, feature on the first iteration of this use case. Um, let's try to get this into production, see if we can realize value without it. And then um, the benefit of MLOps platform and, and a feature platform is you can iterate quickly. Um, and then the other piece around that is um, just making sure that you can um, change code as you move forward. One of the things we see counterintuitively is a lot of times migrations of an existing use case take longer than like a net new use case. And oftentimes that's because folks, one, they, they're trying to reverse engineer the requirements from kind of existing legacy code, which might, to Eddie's point, have a million boxes and tons of arrows that they're all interconnected. Um, and then two, um, a lot of times if you're migrating and just ha having this code handed to you, you may not have the confidence to change logic um, to kind of uh, follow kind of best practices or follow um, some good design scenarios, which may, again, add um, cycles um, as you get a use case into production. This is like a super challenging problem to, uh, I mean, just to, you know, I, I say this almost tongue cheek, yeah, repeatable process, right? But I've seen sophisticated teams, big and small, they, they have a beautiful way to build badge features on top of their data warehouse. Requirement comes in to now have streaming features. Requirement come in, comes in that, okay, now we have data in S3 we need to incorporate. And that just, it makes it very difficult to continue to augment your feature story. I think it's even challenging for us at Tecton to build a generic multi-purpose tool that can solve all these different use cases. I mean, we see everything and it's still challenging. It's a challenging problem to solve for sure. One thing this made me think of is like when you have all these different use cases and various different data pipelines and whatnot, um, the idea of reuse and sharing comes up. I'm curious how you guys think about the importance of feature sharing, data pipeline sharing between different use cases. I, I mean, so when I'm talking to folks in like a pre-sales world, particularly like with directors and you know, C-suite folks, they, they want feature reuse. They don't want their teams reinventing the wheel um, to drive features. In practice, what I see, though, is that features are very near and dear to data scientists. And even if this way this cal feature is calculated is just a tiny bit different than the other one, data scientists want to use their feature. They don't want to reuse the existing feature. So I think, I, I mean, I, I've been here a couple of years, and I think that's just what I've seen across the board. Yeah, yeah. it takes buy-in right. from customer leadership to kind of align, set in some feature governance, best practices, align on a feature definition, even have like the concept of data steward applied to the ML world so that you can have, like, if you say, I want to know what is an active customer or what is transactions in the last 90 days, I can kind of use that, that one feature versus having nine different flavors of that same feature. I think one requirement if you ever, ever want to accomplish sharing and reuse in an organization is you need to establish trust because even if a data scientist identifies another feature owned by someone else and they think, hey, this thing's amazing, how uh, how will they trust that this feature is still going to be around and it's not going to be broken down the road because maybe the use case that it originated in, they decided to just make some minor tweaks and then suddenly you've got this downstream uh model performance outage. And so it's extremely important to somehow have a plan in place to actually establish trust for these uh, feature pipelines, data pipelines, where the uh, ultimate end user is going to be able to uh, rely on the fact that if an upstream change happens, they're going to be informed 
and they'll get the opportunity to maybe just duplicate duplicate the the entity as it is in place um and they're not just gonna wake up days weeks months later to just a model that's not performing anymore and now you need to find the needle in the haystack as to what actually broke it to begin with so that's awesome if i can just reflect back what i think i understood from that is the idea here is you've got potentially a scenario that gets created where a lot of different people are creating more or less the same features and they don't want to use other features that are basically the same thing because there's that lack of trust there or uh, maybe that's a little bit of arrogance but let's just go on the lack of trust thread let's pull on that a little bit more because if it's not theirs and they don't own it they don't know if it's going to be around tomorrow and if their model is built with that then they're not going to feel confident putting that model out into the wild if it's built on somebody else's features and they don't have the proper quality control and just processes around those features staying around. Is that, am I understanding it correctly? Yeah, that's You want to feature reuse, et cetera, uh, actually take place or data pipeline reuse too. It's not even isolated just features and machine learning applications. You have to have the right tooling in place to ensure that, um, you know, CICD pipelines or any other automated processes in the organization, it has to be automated. I don't think it can rely just on a human recognizing that there is another dependency recalling it out and sending a Slack or email message. It has to be automated. You have to have such tooling in place in order to identify these other dependencies and then inform them and get the permission or just duplicate basically the data pipeline. Otherwise, I think, uh, the, the the sharing would only happen if there is basically just no other way for somebody to recreate the pipeline or, or get access to the data. Otherwise, they'll always opt to just uh, create a redundant copy, which gives them a, a greater peace of mind. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. The thing that uh, I'm going to take some questions from the chat. I see one coming through from Steven. My man, do you have a way to monitor the quality of different features that data scientists might use? And how does that work? Uh, is that a question specifically around like what Tecton does or is it a general concept? I think it's, I think it's around what you're doing because yeah, the, do you have a way to monitor the quality of different features that, yeah, I mean, I think you can take it as a, how do you do this in Tecton type question? Yeah. Uh, so I think this, goes a large amount towards the trust thing that Kevin was just talking about. Uh, the two different things I hear people talk about when they say kind of feature quality. Um, one is, is it like, is my feature literally broken? <laughs> and the second one is like, has it subtly changed over time? And people will get really interested in that. Like, has it subtly changed over time problem? Really? That's not lion's share of the issue. 90% of like data quality problems I've seen in ML, both in my time at Tecton, as well as when I worked on uh, like different like pricing systems at Lyft, um, was that you're like, something just breaks upstream. You're an event schema changes. Um, some pipeline runs at a different time, as Eddie was saying. And now like just my teachers aren't there. Um, at Tecton, we have a system that tries to make capturing these really like 
seemingly obvious broken cases as easy as possible. So every time we compute a feature, we're generating some basic profile of like, you know, obviously was how many nulls did you have? How many zeros? What was like the mean, min, median, max, and that kind of stuff. So we're capturing some basic statistics from any feature that's computed. Uh, and then we also apply what we call as validations on top of that. So is that, are all these basic statistics within an expected range? And even more obviously, it's like, let's say a column is now just missing, then we're going to fire off an alert to the owner of that feature that says, hey, there's something broken here. Um, what we've heard from our, our customers is like, Tacton almost kind of makes up for maybe some uh, derelict data quality monitoring upstream in their stack. So really, again, like something else happened in their ETL pipeline uh, and like maybe there are a lot of consumers of that data in their organization, but nobody's really watching it properly. And Tacton helps them catch yeah, my like uh, transaction table is broken uh, because we have these kind of basic alerts in there. And, you know, it's just, it's really important for ML because, you know, if it's one thing, if your dashboard is broken, you know, the director is going to load it up and they're going to send off an angry email. But in the ML case, if your features are broken, then uh, the quality of your applications are degraded immediately. So that's why it was like really important for Tecton to include that out of the box. Last one that we've got coming through the chat that I want to ask you all. And this one is such an awesome question in so many different ways because it's basically saying, hey, I'm new to this world. If you were in charge of a couple applications without even the basic user event tracking setup and you wanted to get a recommendation system up in order, what are the need to haves, nice to haves that you would go out there and get as far as tools and ways of thinking about it too. And that wasn't exactly the question I'm paraphrasing, but I love the question so much. I added my own flavor to it. <laughs> so wh who wants to start that one off and then we can go around the horn because that's great. And just to reiterate, it's like, you're coming from nothing. But you want to, your end goal is like, hey, I want to have a recommender system up and running. What do I do? How do I like incrementally get there? Okay, no, I'm going to get started with this one. Uh, the first thing I do is like, you know, separate the product goal, which is to recommend relevant products to your users from the implementation of it. All I have to say, like, you, you might not be ML model for this. You do need that data. <laughs> so I would focus on the data side, obviously, uh, where Tecton can come into play. But maybe you have a simple heuristic, which is like, let me, I'm just going to recommend like the top three purchase items in the last week. And if you go with that type of approach, then you can get a lot of those fundamentals in place, which is going to be like getting all those pipelines and everything um, without having to start to go into the additional complexity of actual machine learning models. Now, obviously that is the place where you want to go to, to maximize your performance. Um, but I think that's something that can be, can be layered on later when you want to add the additional like 20% gain. Yeah, I would definitely start with the data. If it's, you know, just me, myself and I doing this, I would definitely make sure I have my data in order. And I personally would just use like an off the shelf recommender API from one of the big clouds, probably start there. And then, you know, once I see some lifts there. I think definitely tuning your own model, 
is the end goal. That's where you will get the best returns, but I would kind of leave that down the, down the road a bit. Yeah. My, my last call out on Rexus in specific, uh, specifically is, would be to start with batch. Um, you can get really, pr mm. really good performance with Rexus just with kind of a batch data pipelines running maybe on a weekly, you daily, monthly basis, and then move to, and once you have enough scale to get a return on real time, move to real time with Rexus use cases in, in particular, that lift from batch to kind of handling real time, um, handling some of those cold start problems with Rexus's persist engines, um, is a, is a large leap. So, um, again, start, cut, um, move up that crawl, walk, run, um, slowly make sure you don't skip a, a step and jump to real time. That said, I think building it using real time is now easier than it's ever been beforehand. Like there's more off the shelf tooling now that you can use to make it easy to retrieve the relevant candidates from say an embedding store, which could even be as simple as your Postgres and then narrow it further down using some filters and then narrow it further down, uh, and do some re-ranking using machine learning. Like there is enough blueprints now online and enough managed software solutions out there now where you can really just stitch together say, two different solutions if, and you have a pretty flexible and powerful real-time recommendation system. Um, that said, still start with the heuristic to get something out there. Um, but it's not as crazy of an undertaking anymore to build something in-house, even with just a team of one or two folks than it would have been two, even two years ago. Yeah. So I'm going to try and like throw all of it together now. And I think it's, it's brilliant. A, looking at the business side of things, you're going to want to be able to quantify what you're doing as you go along. So you can get more buy-in from the other side of the house or the company. Right. So if you're doing what Eddie's talking about or Isaac's talking about where you're going gradually there, you want to make sure that, hey, can we actually prove that this is being valuable to the business? Can And how do I prove that? All right, cool. I can show that there's some incremental stuff here. And then if you want to go all in and say, we've got something now, let's really make it much better. Uh then you can and you ideally will have that buy-in because you've been able to prove it out. And Kevin, I got to ask, man, like the last thing, you said with two tools, two managed services, you could get there besides Tecton. What's the other one that you would pair it up with? Like, what would you say? I have a managed database. Uh, and that's already part of your stack. Like you need, a, you need a place where you can run your model and that can be as simple as honestly using SageMaker model serving. Mm. Excellent. I think that is a great place to end it. Fellas, this has been awesome. And all these Tecton guys got to go get back to work. <laughs> they got to go keep building out the feature platform. Thank you all for joining us. And if anyone wants to chat with the Tecton crew, we'll leave all the information. I'll throw it all in the chat right now. And uh, yeah, guys, this was awesome. We definitely went above and beyond my expectations. So I appreciate that. Hey, this is Mike Daldalso, co-founder and CEO of Tecton. Uh, MLOps community is the best way to stay in the loop on the latest MLOps news and best practices. It's also a great way to connect with experts and get support from an amazingly helpful community. Subscribe and stay in the loop.